Every day is filled with choices. You're here because you're choosing to start with a win. Get ready to be inspired, learn something new, and connect with the Win Nation. Coming to you from Denver, Colorado, Adam Canto, CEO here with Start With A Win. With me in the virtual producer, or virtual studio. <laughs> I'm also a virtual Mark. producer. Hello, virtual Adam. Produ- <laughs> Welcome to Start With A Win. <laughs> hey, you know, it makes it real, Mark. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. I'm doing so All good, right. Adam. So good. Hey, hey Mark, how, how do you like the cold? Um, you know, I am not. I'm indifferent to it. I'm, I don't hate the cold. You know, I know some people that are just like, ah, the cold, I hate it. I want to go to, the, but I, I, there is something about a crisp, cool, you know, maybe like morning when your nose is freezing and, and, uh, your snots, you know, turning into ice that sometimes that feels kind of good, you know? <laughs> I think our next guest has had that happen before. Um, I mean, it's, and I'm, I'm talking about not just like a little bit of cold. I'm spending, I'm talking about spending two decades leading polar expeditions here. So, uh, uh, I want to welcome to the show w- one of three people in history to ski solo to both the North and South Poles and has the world record for the longest ever polar journey on foot. Uh, ben Saunders, how you doing, Ben? I'm very well, thank you, Adam. Uh, no, no frozen snot today. I'm pretty, pretty comfortable. <laughs> with the, I think with the, with the heating on, actually, if I don't lose too many macho points for uh, for admitting that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, Ben. I mean, you are. Uh, I. I love where your head is at here. I mean, you're fascinated <laughs> with the polar regions and the human endeavor in, mm. in you know, in, in this part of the world. You're uh, driven by the desire to educate people, inspire people, live adventurously, things like that. So um, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a very interesting individual. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, I, st- I still struggle. I've been doing this more than two decades. I still struggle to describe what I do uh, yeah, concisely. I- I'm normally introduced as a polar explorer, which which clearly is a, a ludicrous job title. I've not discovered any new poles. There are, you know, there's a, there's a North Pole and a South Pole, Jigger Poles, that, that, that's it. Um, so uh, if I'm asked, I normally say that I lead polar expeditions, which is slightly confusing because it, it makes it sound like I take people on trips, which I, I, I do not do. Some of them, as you've just said, have, have been entirely on my own for weeks and weeks at a time. So yeah, I'm still, still struggling. Um, long distance skier, maybe. <laughs> there you go. So I mean, this is this is really cool. Um, when you when you think about the whole process itself of going to one of the poles, I, there's a lot that goes into this to begin with. And um, and I'm I'm speaking from a very uh, uneducated position. However, I, I will share this. My sister Katie spent six years on and off at the South Pole. So oh, wow. Um, wow. I mean, she's like one of the longest serving women down there. Uh, when it comes to that, but uh, and, and the stories I heard were fascinating. But she was she had a place to live. I mean, you were like yeah. in a, you know, <laughs> you were like trekking your way across the the planet here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm in a I'm in a tent. <laughs> so I mean, how did you how did you end up you know convincing yourself this was a cool thing to do? <laughs> you wanted to go, yeah. hey, I'm going to go risk life and limb. <laughs> And get to the North Pole and the South Pole. I mean, take us behind the what caused this this thought on this unusual path in life because this is fascinating oh to me. It is. It's, it's it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint looking back. I mean, I, I was you know as a boy, I was I was very lucky. I have a younger brother. You know, we we grew up in um, 
kind of rural southwest uk so we were able to be outdoors a lot as kids um i you know i, I lived in london for 20 years so I, I appreciate a lot of young people do not have the opportunities to be outside as much as i was and i was i was definitely one of those kids that did not respond well to being told to sit still in a room with the windows closed and don't say anything for an hour just listen and remember what you've been told because it's it, it, important for some reason i that's i didn't learn well that way so i didn't you know, i didn't struggle at school i wasn't I, I i wasn't you know dyslexic or anything but i i equally i wasn't particularly motivated like for me the cool stuff happened outdoors and, and i learned best i discovered by by trying stuff like engaging with stuff kind of doing things rather than being told about things so um always love the outdoors yeah, you know, I was in the Boy Scouts. I'm not quite sure where the screw came completely loose, but I, I, I blame it mostly on a guy called John Ridgway, who is extraordinary. He's 82 now. I, I saw him, my wife and I saw him last year. Um, I worked for him for a year in my late teens um, for what should have been, uh, in the UK, we'd call it a gap year, kind of between school and university. And I'm 43 now. I'm still on that gap year. I, I never made it to you know four more higher education um it's been a lot, lot of school of school of license then school of hard knocks um school of co cold knocks maybe um but john was uh back in 1966 um he and another brit with a cool name called che blythe john and che blythe were the first people to row across the atlantic in, in a wooden boat from boston to ireland 93 days open wooden boat you know two benches two sets of oars um he was in the british army at science special forces he used to he boxed for great britain he sailed around the world three times so to the teenage me he was this larger than life superhero and um and i applied for a job to work for him so back then he had uh, he called it an adventure school and it was a, a a kind of outward bound center on steroids really it's an extraordinary place right up in the scottish highlands quite remote um in the, as remote as it gets in the uk but pretty remote um so i spent a year there um, you know, leading teams outdoors, climbing, you know, hiking, kayaking, sailing. Um, and if I wasn't outdoors, which was every day, I was reading books or eating or sleeping or you know, hanging out with my fellow instructors. There was no internet back then in the, in the 90s. So um, so I, I read loads and the books, you know, in John's extraordinary adventure, exploration library, the ones that really caught my attention were the were polar exploration. Like To me, that just seemed like without leaving the atmosphere that was about as extreme as it as it as it got um so that's where yeah that's where it started and then the first expedition was uh 2001 23 years old and where did you go on the first expedition yeah well we didn't get there so the t two of us um a, a guy called pen had a pen with a p that was his nickname pen and ben and um the, the polar men one radio station called us in the uk and uh, we were trying to get to the north pole geographic north pole from from russia so straight line distance, about 600 miles. We thought it'd take about eight weeks. And the interesting thing about the North Pole uh, is that it's in the middle of the sea, the middle of the Arctic Ocean. And it's a big bit of sea. It's 5.4 million square miles. So about the same. I think, I think it's about one and a half times the size of the United States. So it's, it's, it's in the sea. And I've met, yeah, I've met well-educated adults with degrees who, who think the North Pole is in a forest clearing in Lapland somewhere with like a, you know, Santa Claus log cabin and, and, and are surprised when I say, no, 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 it's in, it's in the middle of 5.4 million square miles of ocean. So if you are daft enough to try and walk to the North Pole, as, as we try to that year, um, you're traveling over the sea, you're walking over the semi-frozen floating, you know, crust of 
pack ice um, on the sea. So there are no maps. We were out there for 59 days, so eight weeks. Um, no maps because the terrain is always changing. It's floating, drifting around, um, breaking up, refreezing. It's it's the natural habitat of the polar bear. That's where they hunt on the pack ice. So we're we're armed you know, for self-defense. Um, so it was not not somewhere that has a great deal to recommend it uh, you know, for, 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 for a nice camping trip. But um, it was... And, and we didn't make it. We got two thirds of the way there. So my first, you know, first big expedition was was a failure in, in many senses. And I never imagined then this would become a career. I just thought this was a one off opportunity to do this trip of a lifetime. And I, I was convinced we would pull it off. I was 23. I was going to be the youngest in history. I'd come back to this world record and presumably, you know, book deals and, and uh, you know, Hollywood agents waiting for the airport. And n- none of that happened. <laughs> oh, wow. So, okay, you, you learned a lot of lessons on that one, obviously. Mm. And, and mm. you're thinking to yourself, I want to go try this again. I mean, did you go after the North Pole the second time or to the South Pole at that point? Yeah, North, North Pole again. So I guess the first decade of my career was, was really focused purely on the Arctic, um, uh, mostly North Pole, Arctic Ocean, and, and a few trips in Greenland. Um, in some ways, um, it was, you know, of my 12 major expeditions, the first couple were were almost a kind of Ponzi scheme because I, I came back from this this failed attempt to reach the North Pole in, in, uh, in God, 2001, 23 years old. My parents had divorced, so my mum was renting this like tiny house so I was kind of camping out with her, living out of a bag. I, you know, broke up my girlfriend. Didn't have a job. Didn't have any money. Didn't have any qualification. Didn't have a degree. Like I spent about a fortnight lying on a sofa, just watching crappy daytime TV, just just gazing into the abyss of of, of self pity, you know. And then I I got a, a letter from a, I guess it was from a lawyer, um, basically saying, look, uh, Buster, here's your here's your bill for the remaining half of the cost, because Penn and I had agreed we'd split the cost 50-50. And, and these are complicated, you know, logistically complex things to organize. And, and I guess we'd racked up a bit more time than we thought, you know, hiring helicopters in Russia and that kind of thing. So I opened this letter and it was basically a bill for, it was it was it seared into my brain, 34,615 pounds. So about $50,000. And I, I had zero dollars in, in the bank. So I remember thinking, oh, wow, like this is, either going to take me like a decade to pay off this debt or like what if i did another expedition like what if i plan maybe i could kind of roll that into the budget and just try and raise more sponsorship and that's that's how it started <laughs> well all right so the second expedition did you mm. did you find that to be a success or yeah what was well, there, there was a there was a little mini one in uh, 2003 so it was just two weeks okay. long but that was on the Arctic Ocean. so i basically flew right out there's this very odd they actually haven't been able to open it for the last two or three years in a row. But there's there's a Russian-operated airstrip for about three weeks of the year on the sea ice. They try and find a big enough bit of ice that you can land aircraft on. It's, it's all pretty sketchy. Um, and I, I basically just about raised enough money to fly out to that, to that point. And then normally people um, do what's called the last degree. So you ski the last degree of latitude, 60 nautical miles. So it takes about a week. Most people do it with a guide helicopter from the north pole back to this air trip and fly home again so you've, you've done it in 10 days and you could say you've skied to the north pole it's really just the last bit so i figured out that if i skied from this airstrip to the pole and then skied back again that would be cheaper because i didn't need the helicopter so so it was kind of two weeks 120 miles give or take um so uh, looking back a relatively easy trip but it was my first first solo expedition and i was you know 24 25 um, so pretty, that feels really young to me now, looking back to me hanging out on the Arctic Ocean for a fortnight, you know, dodging polar bears on my, on my 
Um, but that was a fundamental trip because I, I felt the first trip, 2001, 59 days, for almost all of that journey just felt utterly out of my depth. I, I thought I knew what I was letting myself in for. I'd had a brief you know, army career. I was at Sandhurst, which is the equivalent of West Point in the US. Um, I'd left before I was commissioned, but I'd, I'd been training in Norway with the army. I'd slept in a snow hole. I was um, you know, already then had run marathons. I was lifting weights. I thought I was super fit, thought I was pretty hard. And yeah, the, the day that we landed for that first expedition it dropped by helicopter at our start point um the ambient air temperature was minus 48 degrees centigrade so i guess that's probably negative 50 something fahrenheit and that's that's before wow. wind chill so and it's just like a different universe different planet nothing could have prepared me so i was the first trip just i was just in shock most of it uh, for most of it at, at how challenging this was second trip 2003 I kind of started to figure it out. Um, and then I went back the next year, 2004, and did a really big trip. So solo from the you know, the Russian coastline, basically, to the North Pole. So that was 72 days on my own. Wow. So I, you, you learned a lot of lessons in these. And you kept you mm -hmm. kept expanding your capabilities, expanding your, I, I don't want to say your courage, but your what you felt mm -hmm. were your uh, abilities to succeed here uh, and overcoming challenges easier. I mean, what did you... What were you thinking by this point? I, because there's a lot of people that listen to this and they're like, all right, I, I've got some challenges that I need to overcome in my life. Mm -hmm. What lessons can you give to them from your first several expeditions? It's interesting that you, you shied away from the expanding courage, but I think looking back, that's exactly what happened. I, I think the I think the biggest ingredient in, in the success that I've had in two decades, and, and I've you know, I've I've raised the bar in this field eventually. I've gone from complete amateur, totally clueless first expedition to doing something unprecedented. I, I still have the world record on the, on the, my, on the wall in my downstairs bathroom. So <laughs> still, still hold that. So, um, so I think, I think the biggest ingredient in that success has been self-belief. And, and I, I don't mean, um, arrogance or, or self-importance or conceit or ego, but I do mean that the belief in my own capacity to do things, my own capacity to, to my own sense of agency, and my my theory, possibly half half baked theory, is that is that self belief is this kind of essential human quality that we we all have it. We're all born with it to some degree or another, um, uh, genetically or where where that comes from in in the chemistry in our heads. But I think it's a bit like fitness, a bit like strength or endurance. It's it's a it's a uh, a sort of plastic, malleable quality um, that responds to stimulus. So you can make it stronger, and I think. The big lesson for me has been the importance of, of continually acting without confidence, like acting without certainty. And I think a lot of people perhaps make the mistake of thinking, well, I sh I, I'm not going to start until I'm confident, until I know. Um, but, but confidence only ever follows courage. You, you can't learn to swim by reading a book about swimming. Like at some point, you have to try it. And the same holds true for, for almost any worthwhile endeavor in life, I think. So that's been the big lesson for me. And I'm not, I should say, I'm not talking about being reckless because for the last 20 years, I, I've, I'm convinced I've spent more time in Excel spreadsheets than I have on skis. Like there's a huge amount of groundwork and, and preparation and planning and training that goes into these, into these big expeditions. But I am talking about the ability to take risks and, and, you know, calculate risks and, to trust in your own capacity to, um, to, to deal with whatever happens, you know, uh, what's the lovely Nelson Mandela line. I mean, I'm either, either winning or learning.
That's it. I, I love that. And I, I want to break this down a little bit more because, you know, you talk about um, the limiting beliefs and there's always going to be a limiting belief there, some sort of a, a self-limiting belief or uh, or self-belief that you're capable of overcoming. But you also, and and those are emotional rationalizations a lot of times. But And then you build in your spreadsheet where you're trying to go, okay, am I prepared to, to handle this? Am I mitigating that risk? So you... Um, one of your expeditions was uh, to follow Scott's adventure at the South Pole. And so uh, the the story behind that is Scott and Amundsen are in a race to see who can make it to the South Pole first. And without getting into the details of it for the listeners, I mean, there's essentially two people going after this. One has a different plan than the other. One, Scott dies along the way. And you're like, Oh, I'm going to go on that path is, is my understanding. You're like, Oh, Hey, yeah. this, this dude died doing this. Let's go try that again. So, I mean, how do you, you know, I'm sure you put a spreadsheet to that, but how do you not kill yourself then? <laughs> yeah. Good question. So you, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Adam. So, so there, there was essentially, this is back in like 1911, 1912. There was what turned out to be a race to, 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 for the first person ever to, reach the South Pole and find out what was there. And this, you know, back then, this must have been like flying to Mars. You know, these 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 guys were sailing away from home for three years at a time with no communication, no hope of being rescued, and, and no idea really what lay beyond the horizon. You know, some people back then thought um, that there might be another ocean in the middle of Antarctica. They knew it was vast. It, it's the size of China and India put together, a huge continent. But nobody knew what was in the middle. So yeah, Norwegian team got there first, led by Roald Amundsen. They crucially they used dogs and dog sleds, and they were pretty brutal. They started with fifty three dogs, finished with eleven shooting dogs, feeding the dogs to the other dogs. Scott's team were on foot. Um, that's the big difference. So, so it intrigued me. Uh, so Scott's men, he had his part of a team of five. Um, they all died on the return journey, trying to get back to the coast of Antarctica. Um, and it's an eighteen hundred mile round trip, so it's a long, long old trek. And um, the last three of Scott's team to die in uh, in March 1912, in- including Scott himself, had covered nearly 1,600 miles on foot, which is a record that stood until my teammate Tarka and I finished our journey in 2014, um, where we finally finished that journey for the first time. So to me, for years, it seemed extraordinary that the high watermark of, of you know, sheer human endeavor, endurance in the toughest place on the planet that that bar was set so high a century ago that no one had surpassed it. It, it was as if the marathon record or the, or the Ironman triathlon record had been set in 1912 by, by somebody, you know, smoking a pipe and wearing a sort of, you know, I don't know like a woolen sweater or something. And, and, and despite a century's worth of innovation, advance, you know, knowledge, no one had raised that bar. No one had finished this journey. No one had gone further than that. It was extraordinary because when you look at these black and white photos like I, I often point out that they didn't have um zippers on their jackets because they hadn't been invented yet they didn't have you know vacuum flasks to keep hot drinks warm during that because they hadn't been invented yet so let alone all the stuff that i have you know gps satellite phones solar panels lithium batteries synthetic materials my sledge is made of carbon fiber and kevlar you know the runners are matched to the exact width of my ski tracks with all of this knowledge like how come no one had finished this journey. So that's that's what we set out to do. So what, I mean, what did you have to overcome? Because at some point you have to give yourself the the courage and the knowledge combined in order to to know that, okay, I'm not going out there to kill myself and my partner mm. here. I mean, what, when did you guys look at each other and say, 
okay, we're ready. I mean, what, what did it take to get to that, that point? <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating because everything gets busier and busier and busier up until the start point. It's, you, you kind of, I, I said to someone recently, it felt like I was training for the Olympics and project managing the build of the stadium at the same time. There's just all this stuff going on. And I had 12 people working full time. It, it was, I, you know, I'd inadvertently become the CEO of this weird business where I was also the product. I was the thing that we were shipping, you know, for our, for our sponsors, you know, partners. Um, so it's this, this just kind of crescendo of, of, of activity and all this stuff and logistics, getting people and gear, everything down to, down to South America, flying into Antarctica. And then there's always, with every expedition, there, there is a, a moment, like cliff edge moment, where you can no longer prepare anymore. You know, you, you are stepping into your ski bindings, putting on the stage harness, and that you've done everything you can do. And that's always that's always a, a, a fascinating moment and and pretty terrifying moment most of the time. But it suddenly sinks in, like, oh, hang on, what was I? What was I? Why did I think this was a good idea? <laughs> and I had uh, at the start of that journey. We 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 set off from exactly the same point as Captain Scott, you know, just over a century before us, because his his wooden hut is still there, still you know, still standing, you know, deep frozen. So we were able to look around the hut, and I had like the ultimate bout of imposter syndrome, just thinking, hang on a minute. This is the journey that defeated Shackleton, killed Scott. They're, they're, they're two of the biggest brand names in my world, two of the biggest icons. No one else has attempted this. None, none of my none of my kind of contemporary heroes, no one's attempted this in 100 years. Why is that? Why didn't I pay more attention to all of the experts that were saying that this could not be done? It's just, it's just no one's ever walked that far. Um, it's impossible. You're trying to drag everything. You know, Scott Amundsen, they both had support teams, you know, pre-positioning these depots, caches of food and things. So yeah, it kind of hit me on day one, the, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the sort of severity, the, the weight of what I'd let myself in for. How, when did you know that, okay, we're going to make this? I mean, cause there had to be, you talk about the, um, the imposter syndrome and that self doubt and, mm. you know, am I the wrong person to be here doing the wrong thing type mentality? And so many of our listeners, I mean, the reality is imposter syndrome is human nature. We, oh, yeah. We, yeah. We're all subject to it, but at some point the, the switch goes on and you and you think we got this, mm. we can do it. I mean, was it, was there a moment like that in this or was it, Oh my it, gosh, I hope we get there until the last day. Yeah. It's a really difficult question to answer because I think, throughout that expedition i always had a had this belief that we were going to figure it out somehow we'd, we'd do it somehow like I, I i would have been foolish starting if i didn't have some degree of of you know kind of passion to do this thing and belief that we'd, we'd figured out the way to do it but in other ways um there was uncertainty almost up until the finish line because you, you're trying to you know you're trying to do something we were trying to do something that's, that's never been done before in an environment where so many crucial factors and variables are completely outside our control, so this was this is another another big lesson. I think it was was really around focus um, and and where you're investing your your time and your energy, um, not just physically but mentally and emotionally. And um, it's an environment that can be very frightening, can be frustrating, can be infuriating. Uh, if the winds, if you've got a headwind, uh, poor visibility, very low temperatures, um, we sometimes get really poor surface. Just for some reason, I, I think it's in very low temperatures, there's more friction. 
Um, so rather than things getting more slippery, like once it gets like below negative 40, there's actually more friction because you don't get, if you go ice skating, there's a layer of water between the skate and the ice. That's how you glide around. But if you try to ice skate at negative 45, you just stick to the ice. So the same would happen with our sledges. So, so all of this frustration and the whole thing really was, was almost an exercise in efficiency. It was, it was the time calories, you know, physical energy and, and, and distance, um, and trying to get the maximum distance that we could for the energy that we had. So we, we learned very quickly, Tarka, my, my teammate and I, um, we learned very quickly that, that investing energy in getting angry at the weather or getting scared about the crevasse field we could see on the horizon, that was a waste of energy. That was not, that, that was just going to detract from our chance of success. So, so I guess control the controllables is, is maybe the, the kind of, one line takeaway there be 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 very careful where you're investing your time and energy and and, and yeah you know, the last year we've all been sat in front of screens your screen if it's connected to the internet will, will, will happily feed you 24 hours a day worth of stuff that will make you angry or afraid or or you know whatever that you can't do anything about so yeah be be careful how you invest your energy and your time so there's some huge lessons there, Ben, and thank you for sharing those to us. I mean, that's, you know, when you look at people's challenges that they face every day, and you're right, most of the fears and the overwhelm that is created for us is created for us and shows up on, on our little device here that we're stuck to. And you've actually been attacking that problem itself, is my understanding. Wait, you, with, yeah, um, oh, they, I, I accidentally started a business um, end of last year, so they're not on sale yet, but they, they will be soon. Tell us about that real quick. Yeah, so this was, I read a piece in the New York Times about, it was about smartphone addiction. And um, it was one of the tech editors had, had realized he was spending like 35 hours a week screen time on, on his phone. Didn't think that was healthy. Found a psychologist to help him out and, and wrote this up as an article for the New York Times. And um, the first intervention she, she suggested was was putting a, a an elastic band, a rubber band around yeah, the phone and swapping the lock screen for blank screen with three questions, which were uh, what for why now? What else? I.e., what else could you be doing with your time? So I read this. I went for a run. It was December in the UK. It was kind of cold and wet and dark. I went for a long run. I was thinking about what I'd read. And um, I thought, well, pe people spend a lot of money on their phones. And um, and they spend a lot of money on cases for the phones. And like a, a rubber band is just a bit, you know, what if someone made a band? Maybe, maybe someone does already. You know, surely someone's figured this out. But what if someone made a band to go on the phone? So came back home, did some Googling, couldn't find anything like it. So I was like, oh. I, I better do this. So, um, so this this is a scroll band. This is actually one, one of the one of the latest prototypes. So, it is literally just a silicon band that goes around your around your phone, um, really as a as a as a as a speed bump. You know, just to just to stop you reaching for your phone unconsciously and you know flicking through social media or checking your email again or whatever it is. Um, so this one, well, I've put it on back to front, but I can show you. Um, this one says live, live with intention. It probably doesn't show up on my, uh, on my camera, but they've all got little messages on them. Cause I thought, well, you could put the message on the, on the band rather than, uh, rather than on the lock screen of the phone. So that's a, a yeah, fun, a, another sort of adventure really starting a business, um, uh, with a great friend of mine called Simon, who's helping me out. So yeah, it's called Scrollbands, scrollband.com, uh, coming very soon. <laughs> right on. I, I, it's a great idea. You know, it, it doesn't take something huge to make a, a, a huge difference in somebody's life. It could be something mm. as small as, as a reminder of those little, um, you know, micro efforts, um, mm. the, the micro commitments and, and just touching that. And I, I read, uh, 
an article, people scroll the height of the Empire State Building every day. Wow. Which wow. Uh, I, I think is, you know, I mean, that's crazy yeah. to think that. I mean, the statistics are, 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 are deeply alarming. And I, I'm as guilty as any other human being, you know, in the UK or the yeah. US of spending too much time on my phone. And and I'm I'm also aware that, that you yeah, know, the businesses behind these particular social media networks are, yeah, investing so much money in the algorithms that, that that know exactly how to hook us in and keep us scrolling. So, yeah, I thought there should be some some simple physical just reminder that that your time is the most precious thing you have. Like the average lifetime is it's less than seven hundred thousand hours. Like that that's it. You know, if you were told you had a bank account with seven hundred grand in it and you could never pay in to this account, oh, and by the way, you're probably halfway through it already, um, and you can spend some of this asleep. Uh, you've not much. So I just, I remember thinking about that years ago and just becoming, I actually went too far. I just became obsessed by productivity. I was like, ah, no, I can't, I can't see my friends. I can't go to the movies. I can't do it because I've got so much I want to do with my life. And oh man, there's not much time left. So there's there's, for sure, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, a sweet spot, a a balance to, to, you know, to, to find there. But um, I think, um, and I'm not, I, I love tech. I'm a huge geek. I absolutely love having this much computing power in my pocket and the ability to access information. And and ironically, this is a business I can run from a phone. So I, I, I don't want to give that up. But I'm also aware that these things can be thieves of our time if we're not if we're not mindful. Completely agree. And and correction on that number is 300 feet a day. So the Statue of Liberty, the height of the Statue okay. of Liberty is is the uh, the length that people scroll. Yeah, three hundred feet though. Yeah, still a lot of a lot of thumb exercise. Yeah, you're crawling <laughs> three hundred feet with your thumb for crying yeah. out loud. So, yeah. but yeah. Uh, it's a great job on on uh, inventing that product there. That's that's really cool. I encourage everybody to check that out. And Ben, you've you've shared a lot of uh, ways that you overcome the challenges in life. How you've taken some major polar expeditions and, and set world records, and and uh, even you know stopped us from diverting our attention too much to our phone. Uh, But I I have a question for you that we ask everybody on this show. Mm. And and that is, Ben, how do you start your day with a win? Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, good question. I actually, um, I've I've tried and failed for many years to become a regular meditator. So so I I wish I could say, oh, I get it. I literally have a mat here in a cushion. I have the gear, you know, um, I wish I could say, oh, I, I meditate. But that's not true. Um, I start my day actually. I, I I go go downstairs and make a coffee. Like that's my <laughs> my day starts with some caffeine. Um, and then there you go. and then I and then I lo- we have a we have a dog. Um, she's she's going to be twelve this year. She's getting arthritic. It's all a bit sad. But um, and I take the dog out into the garden. We, we're lucky enough. I bought a house in the country a couple of years ago. And um, and one of my favorite things is just going to the garden and just take the dog out and just actually not. I don't take my phone out there. My you know, wife's normally still asleep. I, I, I kind of became an early riser last year for the first time in my in my entire life. Um, I for years I was definitely a night owl. I did work late, um, but uh, yeah, 2020 started getting up early, so I'm really enjoying that. And um, yeah, get outside and just and just yeah, I, I guess in a strange way it is almost meditation. Just try not to think about anything. Just and just appreciating where we live and looking at the trees and the plants and bird song in the morning. So yeah, just a, just a few moments of trying to be present before I then launch into my giant list for the day in my inbox. Awesome. Ben Saunders, thank you so much for being on Start With A Win. 
Polar Expedition world record holder and adventurer. It's such an honor to have you on here, and thanks for all you do. Thank you, Adam. Cheers. And thank you so much for listening to Start With a Win. Uh, If you'd like to ask Adam a question or tell us your Start With a Win story, give us a call and leave us a message at 888-581-4430. Don't forget to go into iTunes and subscribe, write a review, rate the show. And for more great content, head over to startwithawin.com. You can follow Adam on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And remember, start with a win. Start with a win.